We're just going to spend one, uh, I think, Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason is, um, as we've gone through the books of Moses here, we have quoted extensively from Deuteronomy. So we've really uh, used a lot of the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to make one main point um, here from the book of Deuteronomy, which is, uh, I think, an important one. I'm trying to figure out what's the best place to end here because uh, we really don't have that many Bible studies left here before May. I don't remember the, the date um, exactly. I'm trying not to end on the book of Judges because that's probably the most depressing book in the Bible. So we're going to try to end up on a, on a positive note somewhere. So we'll see how it works out. But uh, next week, uh, we'll get into the book of Joshua. Okay, so let's pray as we begin. Father, we just ask that uh, you would come close to each one of us here. Give us wisdom, understanding, enlighten our minds as we consider some uh, very difficult and, and challenging words of yours from a long time ago. Amen. <clears throat> well, you know, Deuteronomy is, uh, probably contains the longest sermon on record. It really is a sermon. It's broken up into a few uh, parts, but uh, this is uh, the people coming into the promised land. Moses knows that he's not going with them. And so he tells the whole story again. And uh, it's, it's really an interesting book. Uh, a lot of details to the story that uh, are, are critically important. And so it starts out, in this book are the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. And he goes on, and he, we, it's interesting, we get a, another telling of the Ten Commandments, uh, which were written by God's finger. Okay, but this time, uh, the fourth commandment is a little different. Uh, interesting to consider uh, the change there. Well, we won't talk about that. Um, but I want to get into really uh, discussing the subject of inspiration. I think this is one of the most uh, important, relevant subjects uh, for our time. And I want to read a few uh, uh, things that are often said that I think reflect a, a, a healthy desire uh, as it comes to the Bible. Uh, but as we'll see, it, it's very hard to actually put this into practice. So people may say, I just want to do what the Bible says. Again, I think that, that reflects a, a worthy desire. Um, but as we'll see, doing what the Bible says here in Deuteronomy um, could, uh, could really get you in trouble. Or the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Um, is that really true? Yes, the Bible is uh, inspired, I believe. But... Um, it's hard to apply uh, this, these words to a number of uh, scriptures in Bible. Or some may say, well, don't spend a lot of time with fancy explanations and theories. Uh, just obey the word of God. Okay, so we're going to get into the, the issue of uh, inspiration here, and, and we'll use the book of Deuteronomy to do that. Maybe let's start with uh, one isolated passage here, which I think uh, kind of illustrates the challenge. Okay, here are God's words to people about bringing the tithe once they're in the promised land. Every year, be sure to save a tenth of the crops harvested from whatever you plant in your fields. Okay, so this is uh, it's really the second tithe, but they're supposed to bring this in uh, to the place of worship. Okay, and, and here's the command. But suppose you can't carry that 10% of your harvest to the place where the Lord chooses to be worshipped. If you live too far away, or if the Lord gives you a big harvest... Then sell this part and take the money there instead. When you and your family arrive, spend the money on food for a big celebration by cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer. And if there are any other kinds of food that you want, 
by those two. And um, you can look up in, in any translation um, in terms of what this is referring to. New Living, it's wine or other alcoholic drink. Message Bible, wine or beer, anything that looks good to you. Uh, God's Word, it's wine, liquor, whatever you choose. Uh, this, this seems to be referring to, to alcohol here. And so here we have a, a problem. How do we apply this today? Uh, how do, what's our application here from this verse? Uh, you can make some dangerous applications uh, from this verse. You know, I've thought of uh, what would be maybe a good uh, example. You live maybe in Riverside, and you like to go to church in Loma Linda. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you've had a hard week studying. Just to, you know, you're going to pay your tithe that week, let's say. And it's just, boy, it's hard to get all the way in there to Loma Linda. Uh, I just uh, woke up a little late. Well, should you stop off at a liquor store and uh, have a party? I mean, obviously, we're, we can make an application like that. But how do we apply verses? like this. Uh, let's uh, maybe give some other examples. Uh, cities of refuge. Okay, these are described in uh, both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Here in Deuteronomy 19, when the Lord your God destroys the nations whose land he has given you, you will take over their land and settle in their towns and homes. Then you must set apart three cities of refuge in the land the Lord your God has given you. Survey the territory and divide the land the Lord your God has given you into three districts with one of these cities in each district. And here's why. If someone kills another person unintentionally without previous hostility, the slayer may flee to any of these cities to live in safety. Okay, now if it was an accident, uh, why should you have to flee uh, to a city? Well, we give a specific example. For example, suppose someone goes into the forest with a neighbor to cut wood, and suppose one of them swings an axe to chop down a tree, and the axe head flies off the handle, killing the other person. In such cases, the slayer may flee to one of the cities of refuge to live in safety. If the distance to the nearest city of refuge is too far, an enraged avenger might be able to chase down and kill the person who caused the death, okay, even though it was accidental. And then the slayer would die unfairly since he had never shown hostility toward the person who died. That is why I am commanding you to set aside three cities of refuge. Okay, and the, the issue here is, uh, during this time, there was a, a practice known as private vengeance. Okay, and so if you killed someone, you're chopping wood, the handle flies off, um, it was expected that the family of that other individual, even though it, this was not a malicious intent, uh, was expected that they would hunt you down and kill you because of this. Okay, and so uh, God provides here for a safe place, a city of refuge. Okay, but, but our question here is, uh, um, why, why isn't the Bible written this way? Okay, here's, here's maybe a, a verse, this is how I might be tempted to, instead of giving cities of refuge, why don't we have this in the Bible? I forbid the practice of private vengeance. If a man accidentally kills another man while chopping wood, his blood may not be avenged by his family. Okay, wouldn't it have been much better had God just come along and said, hey, this is a bad practice, private vengeance. Uh, you should not be killing people that accidentally um, hurt or, or kill another uh, person. Okay, why do we have here kind of an accommodation? Well, it, it would seem like uh, it's, it, it uh, prevents the individual from being killed. And by the way, how long did you have to remain in the city um, until the high priest died? That might be a long time. You might be stuck in that city for a very, very long time, and if you left the city, you were no longer safe, and they could hunt you down. 
Okay, so, so these are the kinds of uh, issues here. Why, why uh, not just stop the practice altogether? Uh, what about slavery? Well, here's a, a quote from uh, Jefferson Davis of the Confederates who said, slavery was established by a decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. And you do find a lot of talk about slavery in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Okay, again, why not words that God does not allow uh, slavery? Uh, well, let's uh, read a little bit here in, in Exodus. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. Okay, and, and I think uh, the, the point I hope to make here is that in all of these things, it, it would be too much too fast for God just to abolish some of these things that were such a, a settled belief. Okay, it would have been too fast for him just to abolish, for example, the, the action of private vengeance, so he makes an accommodation. It's not the ideal, okay, but it gets people going in the right direction. Uh, slavery, too much, too fast. And so here, at least in this case, uh, well, if you're, if you're going to have a slave, uh, set him free after a period of time. Or a few verses later, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, imagine, okay, but under a financial crisis, uh, this was done, a man might sell his daughter as a slave, and she will be freed at the end of six years, as the men are. Okay, and the other exception was during the year of Jubilee, all the slaves uh, would be uh, set free. Um, so again, it would seem that uh, there is an accommodation. There is a, a step in the right direction, although uh, we'd all admit this is still far from the ideal. Okay, the challenge here, as we'll discuss, is we, we tend to think that everything in the New Testament is not influenced by culture. Old Testament, yeah, a lot of those things we do away with, but not in the New Testament. Um, but again, uh, Jefferson Davis here quotes the New Testament in favor of slavery. Here in Ephesians, Paul would say, slaves, obey your human masters. doesn't say uh, slavery is uh, outlawed with fear and trembling and do it with a sincere heart as though you were serving Christ. Okay, but again, if we take everything that Paul has to say about slavery, it, it was quite radically uh, improved uh, compared to how slaves were treated in that time. For example, in Colossians, Masters, be fair and just in the way you treat your slaves. Remember that you too have a master in heaven. Okay, slaves in this time were not treated fairly or compassionately by their masters. So again, as a, um, uh, a step in the right direction, let's start by having masters treat their slaves respectfully. Okay, and then of course we have this in Galatians. There is no longer Jew or Greek no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ. Okay, and I appreciate here the, the comment, this is a book uh, called Acts of the Apostles, on this verse in Galatians. It was not the apostles' work to overturn arbitrarily or suddenly. Can't do this suddenly. The established order of society. To attempt this would be to prevent the success of the gospel. But he taught principles which struck at the very foundation of slavery and which, if carried into effect, would surely undermine the whole system. Okay, so in other words, the, the principles are really what is important here. God has a, an ideal. He's working toward that ideal, uh, but he's going to lose the game 
if, um, if we don't take just steps in that direction. Oh, polygamy. Maybe let me just read this quickly, but uh, this is from um, an individual in Sweden who practices polygamy. And notice how he uses the Bible to support uh, polygamy. Now, most of these are easy examples. I want to get to a harder example um, here later on as we talk about the role of women in the church. But, but just notice the argument here in polygamy. Before we begin, it is necessary to examine all assumptions in the polygamy issue as it relates to the Bible. Do you accept the Bible as God's word from cover to cover? If your answer is no, then there is no point in your continuing with this essay because we'll be working on different assumptions. The reason I would categorize you as secular is because the arguments advanced by secularists are practically the same as those advanced by those who do not wholly accept the Bible's teaching, okay, including everything, uh, passages that you do find about polygamy in the Bible. Somewhere along the line, Yahweh's infallible word is judged by those Christians who find it difficult to accept what Yahweh says in the same way as secularists do. Those who only accept the Bible in part only accept Yahweh in part. In my experience, though, the vast majority of Christians who say they accept God's word from cover to cover rarely do. When God's word contradicts what they believe, instead of confessing their error and readjusting their lives accordingly, they wriggle and squirm and try to twist scripture to conform them. Okay, and so uh, this is a, a, obviously a problematic uh, approach. Uh, we'd be stoning Sabbath breakers and uh, gluttonous children and, and so on. Okay, so uh, the, the, the words here, we should take the whole Bible, everything that the Bible has to say and apply it today, uh, that really doesn't work. Let's take one verse here on polygamy in Exodus 21. If a man takes a second wife, and, and this has always shocked me, if a man takes a second wife, I mean, God has opportunity here to say, a man may not take a second wife. Okay, but if a man takes a second wife, he must continue to give his first wife the same amount of food and clothing and the same rights as she had before. Uh, it's a terrible practice. And we look at the great men and women of faith, David, Solomon, Abraham, and, uh, and you consider what was going on. And actually, I should have put in the verse here in Deuteronomy where um, Moses would say, at some point down the line, you're going to have a king. Make sure that he reads this book and he's not to have many wives. Okay, and then, of course, we look and see what David and, uh, and Solomon did. But again, is this a step in the right direction? If you're going to have another wife, what was done in that time? Take, you don't like one wife? Get rid of her, take another. You don't like her? Take another. Um, and you treat one cruelly, and you, uh, you uh, have uh, special favorites. Okay, so at least this was uh, perhaps a step in the right direction. <clears throat> Uh, we probably will spend um, an entire Bible study talking about the subject of war and violence. I think a, a very, very practical issue um, for our day. And um, uh, we need a lot of time to go through this. This is, this is very, very challenging. Uh, Jerry Falwell, of course, said God is pro-war. And the evidence for that is uh, Old Testament. And you have God commanding war all over the place. Okay, so how as a Christian... Can you say that God is not pro-war when we've got all these battles here in the Old Testament? Um, well, we'll have to discuss that. You, you really can't get that from Jesus at all, who said, love your enemies, pray for them. My kingdom is not of this world. Remember how he rebuked Peter when he used the sword. So uh, we'll have to uh, consider this, and I think Joshua would be a good place to do that. So we'll talk about it next time.
But it's another issue, and again, the underlying issue is inspiration. How do we understand the inspiration of the Bible? One view of inspiration is everything that is said in the Bible, it's, it's along the same line. Okay, But again, Jesus comes along and says, you heard it said, an eye for an eye, no longer. Okay, So he's establishing here a, a criteria. He's doing away with something and saying, no, there's a better way. And again, to some, that's very threatening because it sounds like a pick-and-choose uh, kind of uh, approach. <clears throat> now, let's talk about uh, the issue here of uh, uh, women in the church. And, and let's, in, in the light of what we've uh, said here about other issues, I just want to consider this. I, I showed a picture here of uh, Pastor Chris Oberg, Dr. Uh, Oberg's uh, wife, who is a pastor at the La Sierra Church. And um, our daughter played in a, a concert here a few weeks ago, and I heard her preach, and it uh, was, was really fantastic. And so, uh, you know, a big issue today is about uh, women. Should they be uh, allowed to be pastors? And again, a lot of uh, the Bible would seem to suggest no. And um, I want to just uh, read a few passages here from Deuteronomy that relate to women, and then we'll try to, uh, try to put this together. This is from Deuteronomy 22. Suppose a man marries a young woman and later he decides he doesn't want her. So he makes up false charges against her, accusing her of not being a virgin when they got married. If this happens, the young woman's parents are to take the blood-stained wedding sheet that proves she was a virgin, and they are to show it in court to the town leaders. Her father will say to them, I gave my daughter to this man in marriage, and now he doesn't want her. I have to read this, not discuss it, or else we'll get in trouble. This is the Bible, so we're just uh, reading this passage here and consider what it means. Her father will say to them, I gave my daughter to this man in marriage, and now he doesn't want her. He's made false charges against her, saying that she was not a virgin when he married her. But here is the proof that my daughter was a virgin. Look at the blood stains on the wedding sheet. Then the town leaders are to take the husband and beat him. <laughs> They're also to fine him a hundred pieces of silver, and give the money to the young woman's father because the man has brought disgrace on an Israelite woman. Moreover, she will continue to be his wife. Hey, she's lucky, huh? And he, and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. Okay, but if the charge is true, and there is no proof that she was a virgin, which uh, would sound like is saying they couldn't find the sheet. There's no proof that she was a virgin. Then they are to take her out to the entrance of her father's house, where the men of her city are to stone her to death. She's done a shameful thing among our people by having intercourse before she was married, while she was still living in her father's house. In this way, you will get rid of this evil. Okay, so the man lies here about the situation, and uh, he gets a beating and a fine. And if the woman has premarital sex, she is uh, stoned to death. Um, so let's read, read on. Okay, it might get worse, but let's read on. If two men are having a fight and the wife of one tries to help her husband by grabbing hold of the other man's genitals, show her no mercy, cut off her hand. Now, I, I was very uh, pleased actually to see that there's been a lot of work on this verse because this is the only example of where mutilation occurred for something like this. And many are understanding that this actually may mean to shave her groin rather than to cut off her hand, because I guess the word for palm is very similar to groin. And that, uh, anyway, so there is some debate about this uh, verse. Okay? But very, very harsh, however we take it. Okay, one more. 
When the Lord your God gives you victory in battle and you take prisoners, you may see among them a beautiful woman that you like and want to marry. Take her to your home, where she will shave her head, cut her fingernails, and change her clothes. She is to stay in your home and mourn for her parents for a month. After that, you may marry her. Later, if you no longer want her, you are to let her go free. Since you forced her to have intercourse with you, you cannot treat her as a slave and sell her. And wouldn't that suggest that's what was being done? Uh, see a woman, you want her, take her, decide you don't want her, well, make her a slave, sell her. Um, so again, we could read this and say, okay, at least this is a small step, a very small step um, here uh, in the right direction. Okay, so we have these, uh, these very challenging uh, verses here. Maybe one more. Suppose a man is caught raping a young woman who is not engaged. He is to pay her father the bride price of 50 pieces of silver and she is to become his wife because he forced her to have intercourse with him. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. No man is to disgrace his father by having intercourse with any of his father's wives. Um, so I guess at least there is a penalty now for doing something so uh, atrocious. I mean, these, are, these are horrible. It's painful to, to read through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, actually, when we come across passages like this. Uh, and that's why we have to take the Bible as a whole. Okay, if this is your 10-minute devotional reading here before you go to bed at night, uh, you will, may not get a lot out of that. Okay, so in the light of, uh, of struggling with these dilemmas about women, here is a most enlightening passage. Remember, Jesus is always, uh, we want to get our theology from Jesus. And uh, this is uh, really eye-opening. About the divorce laws. Okay, Moses gave divorce laws. We won't read them, but they were an improvement from how things were done. Okay, you don't just take a wife, you don't like her, get rid of her. Uh, let's at least have divorce laws. Okay, but Jesus went a step further. And he said, it was also said, Old Testament, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but now. And again, that suggests, okay, that was not nearly far enough. We need to progress beyond that. But now, I tell you, if a man divorces his wife for any cause other than her unfaithfulness, then he is guilty. And of course, the Pharisees who were there said, well, this is a direct contradiction from the books of Moses. I mean, we've, we've got him now. He's contradicting the Bible. Okay, and so they come with a trap. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Hmm, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay, because of course they know what he just said. And Jesus said to them, haven't you read the scriptures? Okay, that's the problem. They had read their scriptures. That's why they're coming with this trap. Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay, logical question now that they ask. Well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Okay, and, and Jesus' reply here is, is I think, the, the key to our understanding of inspiration and all of these issues. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I think we could make that point in just about every chapter of the Old Testament. Uh, it was a concession, 
Okay, it was not the ideal. So much of what we see in the Old Testament, yes, it's uh, the inspired word of God, but it is the inspiration of how God has dealt with this rebellion in his family, which is giving in uh, to something less than the ideal, trying to lead his people in the right direction. And he had to give in because of our hard hearts, okay, with all kinds of things that, are, that offend us, perhaps, that are not the ideal, okay, but it was the only way he could lead his people uh, to, to what he really wanted. Okay, now, um, I have to be careful here. I, so many of you know this has probably uh, been a much discussed subject. And I'm sure many of you know Doug Batchelor, and uh, I want to pay all respect and not sound as critical or sarcastic in any way. Uh, but uh, he had a sermon recently that brought this up, and, and I think it's a, it's a good chance perhaps to try to apply some of these things that we're discussing here about inspiration. He gave a sermon about women in the ministry, and uh, I, I put a link up on the website, so if you want to watch it in its entirety, you can do that. Uh, but here are just some quotes. So he said, those who come to the conclusion that there is not a distinction made in the Bible all the way from Adam to Revelation in the roles of men and women in the church have to go through the most phenomenal mind-bending gymnastic to explain the plain truth. Uh, that it's incomprehensible to me. Okay, and so again, New Testament. Women, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay, and on this verse, uh, Pastor Bachelor said, some will say, well, he, Paul, was off his medication those days, or that this just doesn't really matter, uh, that Paul was being influenced by the traditions of culture. So we're not supposed to take these verses seriously. Well, what's going to happen to your Bible? How are you going to chop up your scripture if you start picking and choosing what passages and commands you think the writers were under some imbalanced influence of the cultures of the day? Okay, so the question is... Um, do these words, wives submit to your husband, is, does that reflect in some way the culture um, of the day? Again, is God giving in to something to, to try to reach people where they are? That's kind of the question. Okay, one more quote. The ultimate authority biblically for God's people from Adam to the present day has been that men are to be the priest leaders in the family and in the church. They are to be ordained. What that means is God has designed in his order of things uh, it doesn't matter how popular it is or what the world says, it's what the word says, that men should have the authority to be the spiritual guides, the leaders in family. So when God says things in his word uh, should be a certain way, are we going to tell him he's wrong? We may not understand it, but the first thing before we understand is to submit to what he says. Okay, so uh, again, the, the position is, you know, it, it's there in the Bible, and so the plain reading of the passage would say that that's... That's just the way it is. It's in the Bible. Okay, so let's uh, consider. And again, our problem, uh, or maybe it's not a problem, but our question is um, words in the New Testament. Yeah, the stoning of Sabbath breakers and all that, most of us don't have a problem saying, okay, that was for that time. It's not for our time. Um, are there things in the New Testament where we could take that same uh, approach? Okay, and for right now, we're just dealing with the subject of women. Okay, and most of this comes from 1 Corinthians. And if some of you were here last year, uh, 1 Corinthians is uh, uh, quite an exciting book because of the rebellion going on in Corinth. And uh, so Paul would say, the head of woman is man. Okay, and then he would go on in that same chapter to say, a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. 
Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. A woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. Okay, but if we just read on in this same passage, Paul admits that this is cultural. So uh, in verse 16, chapter 11, but if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Hey, this was the custom. Okay, so uh, again, we have Paul talking about something that was the custom of the day, okay, and, and he admits as much. Okay, but here's really the, uh, the most talked about passage here as it relates to women uh, in the ministry in chapter 14. The women should keep quiet in the meetings. They are not allowed to speak. As the Jewish law says, notice it's from the Jewish law, they must not be in charge. If they want to find out something, they should ask their husbands at home. It is a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. Okay, so um, again, our, our approach to passages like this, it's in the Bible, you can read it in any version. It's a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. And some have discussed, well, maybe what, is, what might that mean? What church meeting? I'll, um, I found it interesting here that in this sermon that uh, Pastor Bachelor talked about the culture of the day, which I thought was very good. He, he mentioned the Oracle of Delphi, who was a priestess. Okay, and so, yeah, that's relevant. Church down the road here had a woman who was a priestess. And uh, his interpretation was, in that context, Paul is saying, tell them, the women, to be quiet. They're not supposed to be teaching, meaning in the capacity of a pastor. Okay, but uh, again, let's, let's consider the context. Let's try at least to entertain the possibility that, that all of this was related to Paul reaching the people in that time and culture, trying to lead them perhaps to a better way. Uh, when we went through the book of Corinthians, we talked about the Temple of Apollo, okay, which is uh, rumored to have had at least as many as a thousand temple prostitutes at any one time. Okay? And the church of Corinth was coming out of paganism. And when we just consider, uh, this is just a, a little glimpse of some of the things that Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he has to deal with the question of baptisms for the dead. He has to deal with people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Much of the book has to deal with the wild, chaotic forms of worship. Okay, he spends a lot of time dealing with that. And finally, he says, keep away from the worship of idols. And would he have to tell them that if there weren't still some uh, worship of idols going on? He has to deal with a man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother. And then finally, it's almost he's exasperated after going through all this. He says, I declare to your shame that some of you do not know God. Hey, this is a rebellious church. Okay, and um, so it, I think in the context here, we've got, okay, across the street, the rival paganism here, Temple of Apollo, uh, lots of temple prostitutes. We've got the, uh, the priestess here down at the church, uh, a mile down the road or whatever. We've got all this going on. Okay, could it be that, that Paul is saying, no, we're going to do something different here than what is happening in the pagan religions? The other thing that's very relevant is how did the Jewish leaders view women in this day? This is a quote from a first century rabbi who had this to say about women during that time. Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughters the Torah is like one who teaches her obscenity. Okay, now, which would suggest that there was a pretty low view of women 
uh, during this time. Uh, not just women should be quiet in church, but they have no right to learn this stuff. So in that context, you've got rebellion on one hand, you've got religious conservatives on the other hand. Uh, could it be that Paul is, uh, like we talked about earlier, trying to reach maybe a principle to eventually destroy this whole system uh, that was so abusive to women in the first place? And I think if we're really going to take all of Paul's advice on women and Corinthians, uh, well, we should take his advice for men as well. It is good for a man not to marry. Okay, why did he say this? Well, the good news is going throughout the world, and I think Paul is just saying, you know, I wish there were more people like me willing to give everything. Uh, you know, Peter had a family. Did that slow him down a little bit in traveling and preaching? Uh, I don't know, but I think, again, we have to understand this in the context and the culture and Paul's uh, wish to have more people like him traveling around. So when we have a, uh, Paul would write later in Ephesians, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And a few verses later, slaves, submit or obey your masters. So if uh, we obviously wouldn't use one verse to support slavery, so should we use another to uh, support a, a certain relationship between men and women? I mean, let's say you have a woman who's a PhD in biblical interpretation. She speaks Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and she's reading um, the Bible with her husband, who's a physician. Um, should she submit to her husband's interpretation of scripture? Or might they disagree and she might be right? How would that uh, work out if wives uh, submit to their husbands? Well, I think the answer to virtually every question is found in Jesus. So I want to just go through quickly here and consider how Jesus treated women, which was really remarkable. Jewish ritual laws stated that a man could not speak to a woman other than uh, a wife or child during her period. Okay, that was the rule. And of course, we have this woman who had suffered from 12 years of constant bleeding. And I guess you could argue, well, maybe it wasn't uh, relating to any uh, female problem, uh, but can we imagine if it weren't that Jesus wouldn't have uh, healed her and, and talked with her as graciously as he did? Jewish ritual law would uh, forbid conversing with foreign women. And here we have Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman, the Canaanite woman, uh, seemingly going out of his way to talk to these women, healing them, uh, or at least uh, healing the daughter of the Canaanite woman. That was countercultural. Okay, it was much different than uh, how anyone expected women to be treated, certainly by a Jew. Okay, I read this verse about how women here are not allowed to learn uh, the Torah, that that was a, a, a bad thing. And then, of course, we read about Mary. Remember, Martha was cooking and cleaning and all of that, and she had a sister named Mary who sat down at the feet of the Lord and listened to his teaching. Okay, and a good Jewish rabbi would probably, during that time, say, well, this is not appropriate. Okay, but Jesus endorsed this by saying Mary has chosen the right thing to learn uh, the, the things that I am teaching. Again, very countercultural. Uh, in the temple, Jesus saw a woman who was crippled. Okay, and he pointed her out. Remember, women aren't even supposed to speak in church. And here he addresses this woman. And uh, remember, people are upset because he tried to heal on the Sabbath. And he said, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? And I found this interesting because there are countless examples of the, quote, sons of Abraham. 
Okay, this is the only time we have the phrase here, a daughter of Abraham. Okay, this is coined by Jesus. It refers to her as a daughter of Abraham. Again, that, that would be shocking, I think, if we were in that culture and we heard Jesus refer to a woman as a daughter of Abraham. Uh, so many other examples. I mean, the, the poor uh, widow who put two mites in. I mean, not only was she poor, which, again, in their mindset is, if you're poor, you're cursed by God. Okay, so she's not only poor, but she's a woman. Okay, and to be praised publicly uh, by Jesus, I mean, that's, again, very, very countercultural. And, I mean, we've, we've talked about the woman caught in adultery. Um, some have argued that uh, this shouldn't be in the Bible because there are some ancient manuscripts where you don't find this story. Uh, but the best argument that it belongs is the story is unthinkable in that time. No one would make it up. Uh, so dramatically countercultural, caught redhead in, in adultery, and that he would say, I do not condemn you. You, you just couldn't make that up uh, back in this time. So it belongs in the Bible. Okay, there's so many examples. The, the point I'm trying to make is Jesus was very countercultural in his treatment of women. And so, not surprisingly, here we have the crucifixion. And you know, the Roman officer proclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God, and many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him, were watching from a distance. Uh, what were the men doing? Uh, they'd all fled. Okay, but lots of women were there. And at the resurrection, uh, who greeted Jesus when he was resurrected? Uh, women. What were the men doing? If you read in John 20, they were locked behind a door, scared to death. Okay, but the, the women are there at the tomb. Okay, so... Uh, again, another example is, is the resurrection story believable? Uh, if you were a man, you would never make this up, this story about the women that are there and, uh, and the men are the ones that are terrified. So I think we could come back to this verse in Galatians, uh, just like uh, we talked about with slavery. No longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus and, of course, this institution, which uh, has, a, I think you'd have to say, a woman is the most prominent founder, would say women are to be qualified to take any post that may be offered. All right, so next time we're going to talk about uh, very much related, but this time the subject of war. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that uh, in Jesus we see such a wonderful picture of who you are, uh, God that uh, seems to go against uh, so many of our settled beliefs. Uh, please help us to fully internalize everything about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as we try to come to a clear understanding of truth. Amen.